1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallets, Smart Money Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: At eight o'clock, a regiment formed in line of battle and took position on the brow of a hill about two miles north of Gordon's Mills and near the Chattanooga Road. By this time, the engagement had become general and the troops rushing forward rapidly. Feeling anxious to have one more opportunity of speaking a word of encouragement to the soldiers who were about to enter into the very jaws of death, and many of whom, perhaps, would never hear words of prayer upon earth again, I rode up to Colonel Lane and asked just five minutes' time to pray with them before going into action." certainly was his instant reply
2: another pen must describe the scene as witnessed by others on the morning of that eventful day says a correspondent before the skirmishers were deployed a scene occurred with the 11th ohio which for sublimity and moving power has been seldom surpassed the chaplain rode up in front of the line and the colonel gave an order which on being executed formed the regiment in two divisions, with the chaplain in the center. Without dismounting, he addressed the troops in a clear, loud voice that sounded strangely amid the loud explosions of the artillery and the rattle of musketry. "'It is but little I can do for you,' said he, in the hour of battle, "'but there is one thing I will do. I will pray for you. "'And there are thousands all over the land praying for you this morning.' and God will hear them. You must now pray, for God is a hearer of prayer, and if this is the last time I shall ever speak to you, or if these are the last words of Christian comfort you will ever hear, I want to tell you, dear comrades, that God loves you. I pray God to cover your heads today in the battle storm. I pray that he may give you brave hearts and strong hands. Let us pray.
0: Instantly, every head was uncovered and bowed in reverence, while hands were clasped on rifles, the bayonets were gleaming in the morning sun. The flag, pierced and rent on a dozen battlefields, was drooped, and strange but glorious sound on a battlefield, the voice of prayer was heard. When the chaplain closed, he raised himself in his saddle, waved his hat two or three times around his head, exclaiming, God bless you today, dear comrades, and make you strong and brave.
2: Scarcely five minutes then elapsed till the entire brigade moved forward and engaged the enemy.
0: Chaplain William W. Lyle, 11th Ohio Infantry, Army of the Cumberland.
2: everyone welcome to episode 409 of our civil war podcast my name is rich
0: and i'm tracy hello y'all thanks for tuning into the podcast as y'all will recall with the last episode we finished looking at the action on the northern part of the battlefield on the morning of sunday september 20th 1863 the third and final day of the battle of chickamauga We also talked about the abysmal performance there on that part of the battlefield by Confederate right-wing commander Leonidas Polk.
2: The commander of the Confederates Army of Tennessee, Braxton Bragg, had initiated the battle two days before with the goal of turning the enemy left and then pushing the Yankees south, cutting them off from Chattanooga and destroying their army. And here, on the morning of the 20th, Bragg was still trying to turn the enemy left, so that he could push the Yankees south, away from Chattanooga, and destroy their army.
0: But the failure of the Confederate right wing on the morning of the 20th was significant because, after that failure, the chance for any truly decisive results at Chickamauga had slipped through Bragg's fingers.
2: You see, on the 20th, Bragg could only hope for decisive results If he could succeed in rolling up the Union left, and that, of course, could only be done on the northern part of the battlefield by Polk's wing of the army. And so, as Tracy just said, the failure of the Confederate right wing that Sunday morning was significant, because it meant that, whatever else happened that day, Bragg was almost certainly going to fail to destroy the Yankee army. He might give the enemy army a good kicking, but the failure to turn the federal left meant that short of a miracle, Bragg's plan was going to come up short. He wouldn't succeed in pushing the federal south, cutting them off from Chattanooga, and destroying their army.
0: The Confederate right wing failed in its mission that morning due to Polk's inept direction, but also because on the federal side, George Thomas and the soldiers in blue under his command were able to maintain their position and turn back the piecemeal, uncoordinated rebel attacks.
2: However, the Federal's success on the northern part of the battlefield, there in and around Kelly Field, came at a price. Because to answer Thomas's never-ending calls for assistance, Army of the Cumberland commander William Rosecrans pulled more and more troops from other parts of the Union line and sent those troops to Thomas. That meant that although Thomas's sector of the battlefield was made rock solid, all the shifting and moving of units led to confusion and resulted in a serious mistake that left the southern part of the Federal lines fatally vulnerable just as Longstreet's wing of the Confederate Army finally started to roll forward.
0: We took some time in the last episode to explain how Federal Division Commander Thomas Wood ended up pulling his brigades out of the front line and how that left a gaping hole in the Federal lines just at the point where Longstreet's attack was about to land.
2: Not only that, but Rosecrans' moving and shifting of so many units meant that, except for Wilder's Lightning Brigade and one brigade from Jefferson C. Davis's division, the entire right side of the Army of the Cumberland wasn't set and in place, but instead was in motion when Longstreet's attack started to roll forward.
0: Taking all of that into account, the timing of Longstreet's attack simply couldn't have been worse for the Federals or better for the Confederates, as circumstances prepared the way for the most dramatic moment of the entire battle.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Because by pure blind luck, the stage was thus set for Longstreet's attack to hit at the very moment almost the entire right side of the Union Army was in motion, and to strike at the very point the Yankees had created a fatal weak spot. I had not slept much for two nights, and, as it was warm, I dismounted about noon, and giving my horse to my orderly, lay down on the grass and went to sleep. I was awakened by the most infernal noise I ever heard. Never in any battle I had witnessed was there such a discharge of cannon and musketry. I sat up on the grass, and the first thing I saw was General Rosecrans crossing himself. He was a very devout Catholic. Hello, I said to myself. If the general is crossing himself, we are in a desperate situation. Charles Dana, Assistant U.S. Secretary of War
0: The scene now presented was unspeakably grand. The resolute and impetuous charge, the rush of our heavy columns sweeping out from the shadow and gloom of the forest and into the open fields flooded with sunlight, The glitter of arms, the onward dash of artillery and mounted men, the retreat of the foe, the shouts of the host of our army, the dust, the smoke, the noise of firearms, of whistling balls and grape shot and of bursting shells, made up a battle scene of unsurpassing grandeur. Brigadier General Bushrod Johnson, Division Commander, Army of Tennessee.
2: James Longstreet had spent the morning trying to organize his wing of the Confederate Army. As we talked about previously, Longstreet especially desired to shuffle units around so that his veterans from the Army of Northern Virginia would be in the front line and lead his attack. But as you guys know, Longstreet's effort to create space to place the troops from Virginia in his front line had unintended consequences when it resulted in Stewart's division sliding to the north and getting in front of some of Patrick Claiborne's troops.
0: In fact, the final alignment of Longstreet's wing was quite unbalanced and, in the end, wasn't at all what he had wanted it to be. That's because, even with Stewart shuffling to the north, there still wasn't space in the front line for the troops Longstreet wanted to move up. So the result was that three divisions were stacked up in a column five
2: lines deep. After the war, with the results plain for all to see, Longstreet would claim that he had intended all along to create that grand column and use it as a giant battering ram to punch its way through the federal line. Longstreet would make it sound as if this deployment and the consequent shattering of the federal right at Chickamauga was a stroke of brilliance that was the culmination of all the experience he'd gained on battlefields from 1st Manassas to Gettysburg.
0: However, in reality, what happened was the battering ram column, rather than being Longstreet's brilliant idea, was actually the unintended consequence of old Pete trying and failing to shuffle units around so that the troops from Virginia that he wanted in the front line would be in the front line.
2: And then, as we've already said, it was just pure blind luck that the Confederate battering ram hit the Yankee line at the exact spot where a gaping hole had just been created by the Federals themselves when Wood's division marched away from the front line as a result of those confusing orders from Rosecrans.
0: Despite what Longstreet claimed after the war, his own official report, written in October 1863, makes no mention that the battering ram column was his idea or intentional. In fact, in his report, he mistakenly places Hood's old division under Law's command in the front line which is where he'd wanted it to be, but that's not where it was when the attack started.
2: All of that's to say that while there's still a tendency in some quarters to assign credit to James Longstreet for a stroke of brilliance in creating the battering ram column and sending it barreling through the gaping hole in the federal line, we wanted to point out that in reality, neither of those things were intentional on Longstreet's part.
1: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: When Longstreet's wing moved forward shortly after 11 a.m., it rolled right through the gap that Wood's withdrawal had just made in the federal line. Bushrod Johnson's division led the attack. Next came Hood's old division, commanded by Evander Law, followed by two brigades of Lafayette McClaw's division, commanded in McClaw's absence by Joseph Kershaw.
2: The battering ram column was under the overall command of John B. Hood. Bushra Johnson's men, leading the assault, plunged ahead through the woods behind the Brotherton farm, then burst out into the open fields of the Dyer farm and found one of the most incredible panoramas of the entire war. The open space was perhaps 500 yards deep and about 1,200 wide, rimmed with hills on the far side To form a natural amphitheater. And it was the rear area of the Federal Army, which was now an indescribable scene of panic and confusion. As we've heard, to Bushrod Johnson, the scene was, quote unquote, unspeakably grand.
0: The scene's splendor was very much in the eye of the beholder, since the Federals who were experiencing the panic and confusion viewed it very differently. On Rosecrans Headquarters Hill, Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana's nap was rudely cut short by the sudden noise of battle, and he awakened to see old Rosie crossing himself. Dana and Rosecrans watched in horror as federal fugitives fled the field pursued by Bushrod Johnson's Confederates.
2: The Union right was rapidly disintegrating. Within a matter of minutes, the only remaining federal units that retained any cohesion on this part of the battlefield, were Wilder's Lightning Brigade, the three brigades of Sheridan's division, and several batteries of reserve artillery. With the Confederates having punched right through the hole left by Wood's departure, the next stage of the battle here would be the struggle to control the dire field and see whether these few Union formations could halt the rebel assault.
0: The Federals at first responded aggressively. From the ridge north of the Dyer road, the Union batteries opened up on Johnson's Confederates and laws coming up behind them.
2: From a hill on the south side of the road, next to the one where Rosecrans and his headquarters personnel were hurriedly mounting up and riding away, a brigade of Federal infantry charged directly into the onrushing rebel masses in the open ground below. These Union troops were the lead brigade of Sheridan's division. They had a good position up on the hillside, but McCook, who had just come up out of the chaos in the Dyer field, foolishly insisted on ordering them to charge at once.
0: Down off the hill they went, bayonets leveled, but they were quickly overwhelmed by the left side of Hood's massive assault column and the right side of Thomas Hindman's division, which was now advancing on the far southern end of the Confederate line.
2: Sheridan's next brigade tried to make a stand on the hill, but was overwhelmed and swept away. The 3rd Brigade of Sheridan's division never got to the hill, instead making its stand on the low ground to the south. It fared slightly better, but finally, it also had to join the retreat.
0: Sheridan's division was wrecked, and it might have seemed to Rosecrans, then making his own retreat along with the shattered remnants of the Federal Center and right, that things could hardly have been worse.
2: In fact, they could have been a good deal worse. Part of the reason Sheridan's southernmost brigade had done as well as it had and the remains of Sheridan's division had been able to retreat with any order at all, was that their southern flank was solidly covered by the one remaining unbroken Federal unit on this part of the field. That was Wilder's Lightning Brigade, which kicked Hindman's momentarily victorious rebels off the Widow Glen Hill and sent a brigade of them fleeing all the way back to the Lafayette Road several hundred yards to the east.
0: Wilder next planned to fall on the flank and rear of the rest of Longstreet's wing as it turned north to confront Union troops, still resisting in that sector. Breaking through that many Confederates would have been a challenge, but Wilder was going to give it a try when a high-ranking fugitive rode up.
2: In the chaos and confusion, Charles Dana had somehow gotten separated from the rest of Rosecrans' headquarters personnel, and he was very frightened. He flatly forbade Wilder to make his counterattack, and instead demanded an escort back to Chattanooga. Reluctantly, Wilder had to comply, and so the Lightning Brigade retired from the field of Chickamauga, unbroken and still full of fight.
0: Meanwhile, back in the Dyer Field, Bushrod Johnson, commanding the lead Confederate division, and John B. Hood, in overall command of the central assault column, had more to think about than the feeble efforts of the Union right to stave off disaster.
2: Johnson and Hood's immediate concern was the presence of a line of federal cannon along the high ground at the far side of the Dyer Field. Even as the Union left collapsed, A dozen more guns had come thundering across the dire field, behind lathered horses, up to the high ground, and gone into battery. Now the crest was lined with 29 artillery pieces, barking their defiance at the advancing rebels.
0: However, the momentum belonged to the Confederates, and the hard-charging Hood knew what to do with it. He told Johnson, "'Go ahead and keep ahead of everything.'"
2: That was all Bushrod Johnson needed to hear. His division moved out due west along the Dyer Road and across the Dyer Field. His left brigade got in among the Yankee supply wagons near the spot where the Dyer Road joined the Dry Valley Road. The federal wagons were attempting to flee by way of the Dry Valley Road toward McFarland's Gap, but Johnson's rebels captured a dozen or so wagons in a confused melee in the midst of a traffic jam.
0: For a few minutes, those Tennesseans were within reach of the Dry Valley Road, the last road connecting the routed Union right with Chattanooga. But they were too few, too late, and too disorganized to achieve decisive results.
2: Nor could Hood have spared the force necessary to seize and hold the Dry Valley Road, since he was now compelled to face the Federal troops even then rallying in front of the high ground on which those 29 Union guns had planted themselves.
0: Meanwhile, Bushrod Johnson's other two brigades were moving to flank those Yankee guns by getting up on the high ground south of them and advancing onto their right flank while the Union cannon were firing upon lost Confederates, who had swung straight toward them across the open field.
2: For the Federals, the collapse of their formidable gun line came with stunning suddenness. The Union infantry in front of the high ground, already badly demoralized by the chaos and confusion, now went to pieces. Meanwhile, the artillerymen on the right were trying to limber up and get away from Bushrod Johnson's flanking column. Then the charging Confederates simply overran the position, and everyone was simply trying to get away. For most of the Union guns, it was too late, and well over half of them became prizes of the bloodied but jubilant rebels.
0: Hood now sought to exploit his advantage by pushing still further north. Longstreet agreed, since to attempt to wheel to the left and drive the Yankees southward, as Bragg had originally planned, was now no longer a good idea in the changed circumstances of the battle.
2: Right. Well, for one thing, there were no longer all that many Yankees on the Confederate left to be pushed southward. For another, Wheeling left would now expose Longstreet's troops to attack from the flank and rear by the unbroken Federal forces to the north, commanded by George Thomas.
0: The logical move now by Longstreet's wing would be to move north in the direction of those still unbroken Federals who were in and around Kelly Field.
2: And so, whether Hood or Longstreet realized it or not in that moment, their struggle had by now been transformed from a contest to destroy the Yankee army into an effort to do it what damage they could before it escaped to Chattanooga. That the battle would now be a Confederate victory was obvious, but the failure of Polk's to turn the Federal left earlier meant that the chance to destroy the Federal army had been lost, and the question now was simply what price the Confederates could make the Yankees pay for their defeat. That price could still be considerable, since a half-day's fighting remained in which to determine the outcome.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Chickamauga Campaign, Glory or the Grave? The Breakthrough, The Union Collapse, and the Defense of Horseshoe Ridge, September twentieth, 1863, by David A. Powell.
2: This is the third book in Powell's excellent series on Chickamauga. If you have all three volumes, along with his atlas, The Maps of Chickamauga, You should be all set.
0: You can find a complete list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
2: We want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Martin P., Jason C., Kurt D., Axel R., Nathan B., and Daniel P.
0: And thanks to Michelle K., Tom W., Gene S., and Thomas G. for their donations.
2: And then just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music.
0: Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care.
2: Thanks, everyone. Bye.